Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Patrick Markey, a professor of psychology and brain sciences at Villanova University. His research spans a number of topics, including romantic relationships, sexual behavior, body image, and the impact of violent video games. And his work has garnered widespread media attention. He is also co-author of the new book, Fuck Divorce, a science-based guide to piecing yourself back together after your life implodes. Now, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that I've done several episodes on starting and maintaining healthy relationships. But something we haven't done a deep dive into yet is what happens when a relationship ends and how to move on. So this episode is going to be all about divorce. Divorce sucks. It sucks away your time and your energy. It sucks away your money. And for some, it even sucks their will to live. So we're going to explore how to put the pieces back together and move forward in a healthy way, according to science. We're also going to discuss whether you can divorce-proof your relationship. This is going to be a great and really important conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Patrick, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. And I got to tell you, man, your voice. <laughs> you got the voice of a radio guy. Holy cow. I'm impressed. Well, thanks. Um, you know, never expected to be a podcaster or to be performing with my voice because I'm somebody who spent a big chunk of my life not being comfortable with how I sounded. And I would like run away anytime somebody was going to record me. But what forced me to get comfortable with it was when I recorded the audiobook version of Tell Me What You Want a few years ago. And I had to sit in a studio for like 17 hours recording this. And, you know, I could hear myself the whole time. So it was kind of like flooding, right? And I had to learn to get comfortable with it. And now, hey, I actually kind of like the way that it sounds. <laughs> you record something now, you're like, gosh, I sound really good. I should do this more often. I like that. It's good. It's good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. I've been following your work for a long time. In fact, ever since I was a graduate student. And the first time we met was actually just as I was finishing up my master's degree at Villanova University. And you were applying for a job there. And I got to see you present some of your work. And I was fascinated. So I'm thrilled to have a chance to pick your brain about it. But before we dive into that, let me ask you to tell us a little bit about your professional journey. So how did you get into the world of psychology in the first place? And how did sexuality and relationships become a central part of your work? Yeah, well, I mean, most of my training is in quantitative stuff. And so that's why I have a lot of different research interests is kind of I just follow the quantitative data and I, I focus on what I'm most interested in on that moment. But my journey actually started, at least in examining relationships in graduate school with my ex-wife, who, if you look at most of my publications, in fact, I'm sure some of the things we'll talk about today are by Marky and Marky. And so we are relationship researchers who based our early career, first 15 years or so, doing research on couples together. And then eventually we got divorced. So m maybe I'm not very good at what I do. Maybe that's what that, that implies. <laughs> but then after our, our divorce, you know, I went through all the cycles of, of what we talked about in the book, what I'm sure we'll talk about today. But during that time, I eventually met my current wife, Dr. Erica Slaughter, who is also divorced from, from a, another person. 
And we worked together to write this book on kind of a guide of what to do. And so kind of my journey into where I got to for this book is very different. It's very personal for me. And so that kind of, I guess, answers the book part. How I got into psychology itself, just as a field, that's a very different story in which I basically was interested in science, but I didn't want to do something with much math, which is very ironic considering I'm a quant person and I was wrong about psychology not having much math. And so I took this class that I thought would be easy and I was wrong. And here I am now talking to you. So... Yeah. And, you know, that's a common misconception a lot of people have about psychology is, you know, sometimes people go into it because they're like, I don't like math. And, you know, here's a way I can do science and I don't have to know math. But it turns out all you're doing all the time is running stats. And so if you don't understand statistics or don't have an easy time with that, it can make working in this field pretty tough. Yeah. I mean, one of our secrets is our measurements stink so badly that we have to make up for it by modeling all this air and all the stuff we have in it. So we end up being super mathematical, but we're mathematical because our measurements aren't always the greatest measurements in the world. And so I I did not know that as an undergrad and I ended up on this path. And now, you know, like I said, I'm the stats person in our department and and I'm in an area that I do nothing but stats all day. And I love it though. I, I have definitely made myself really enjoy it. But I was definitely misled. <laughs> <laughs> well, and stats can be sexy if you're studying sex. So, you know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but let, let's talk about your book, which is all about divorce. And I love this book because it tackles this really important topic in a scientific way. And there are so many things from it that I want to dive into. But I think as a starting point, Let's talk about the process of divorcing and sort of the immediate aftermath of it. We know that this can be extraordinarily stressful and that different people cope with this in different ways, but some approaches are a little healthier than others. So can you share with us some of the do's and don'ts of coping with the stress of divorce? Obviously, we know that every situation is different. There are no one-size-fits-all rules. But what are some practical tips that can help people to cope in the very early stages? Yeah, I mean, in this by itself is a separate book on each thing you could talk about, that there's so much in-depth you can go into. And you're right, that there's no... And I think one of the problems in writing a book like this is we've set out what science kind of tells us works for the average person, but certainly most people aren't the average person uh, across all these metrics. And so you're going to have differences. And so pretty much for everything that we talk about today, you know, if it, if what's working works for you, do it. <laughs> so like, these are suggestions of what tends to work for most people. And one of the things that we focus on a little bit in the book is one of the big issues people have after divorce is their identity is basically almost destroyed. I mean, most people have been the average person that gets divorced has been married eight years. And so they've been with this partner for eight years, at least eight years, plus dating beforehand. And that's a long time to kind of take on, you know, their interests and their desires that you kind of then adopt as your own. And then suddenly when this person leaves or you leave or you both leave, suddenly you have to question yourself of who am I? And that's terrifying for most of us that we have to figure out, you know, am I now a different person? Do I want to redefine myself? Do I want to add new components to me? Do I want to jettison this other stuff? And that by itself is terrifying. I mean, and this isn't even discussing like financial issues, children issues, like, you know, again, we could go on and on about all the different types of things. 
But one of the things that that I think is important to focus on at the start is the identity, because that is one thing that you have some control over on your own, that all the other issues we talk about, a lot's going to depend on how your ex behaves for some of these issues. You don't have as much control of them, but trying to redefine yourself after you get divorced is one of the most important first things to do. I mean, after, you know, waking up in the morning and brushing your teeth, which actually is a, a, a good thing to be able to do after you get divorced. And it's not easy to do after you get divorced. But that identity and kind of reinventing yourself is one of the most important things to do. Yeah. And it's reminding me of a lot of things that I learned about in graduate school. What I really focused on in grad school was how you develop healthy relationships and what happens. And we talked a lot about this idea of cognitive interdependence, where you transition from I to we, and there's sort of this merging of the self and other. And we tended to look at that as, you know, hey, this is the really positive thing, you know, that you and your partner have this great sense of cognitive overlap. But then when the relationship ends, whether it's through divorce or your spouse passes away, there is that difficulty in finding who you are because who you are has become your relationship and you're so defined by that. And that's something that actually a lot of people struggle with when they're in a relationship is they lose that sense of self. And that actually motivates a lot of people to commit infidelity because they've sort of lost themselves in the relationship. But you have this process happening often after divorce where it's that that search for the self. And I think that's, that's such a key and important point. And I had Dr. Gary Lewandowski on the podcast a few episodes ago and we talked a little bit about breakup and moving on and how one of the most helpful ways is really to go out and do the things that you couldn't do when you were in a relationship. Rediscover yourself and that can be a really helpful way of moving on and at least getting that process started. Yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. It's building up what's called self-concept clarity, that having a clear understanding of who you are, that a lot of times when we ask people right after they get divorced or a relationship ends, who are you? They, they respond exactly what you're saying is that they simply don't know. And so, and this can be, some people, as you said, might enjoy this ability to redefine themselves, kind of like they're like the $6 million man or $6 million woman that they can rebuild themselves into a, a better person than they were before. And it's great if you can do that. And it is a, a rare opportunity to do that. So you can kind of, you and Gary, sounds like you were talking about, kind of turn this negative into a positive. Yeah, and I think that's a great way to look at it as this is an opportunity to really figure out who you are and explore new sides of yourself. And you might discover things that you never otherwise would have had a chance to discover. Now, I think we all know people who have gotten divorced before. And when someone tells you that they're divorcing, our first instinct is usually, you know, we want to help them in some way. But sometimes people, and even very well-intentioned people, say and do the wrong thing, and it ends up making this stressful situation even worse. So I'm curious if you have any advice on, you know, what are some good and not so good ways of providing support to a friend or family member who has just disclosed to you that they're going through a divorce? I mean, the, the main thing that anyone can know that's going through a divorce is just to be there for them. I know it's the most, you don't need a degree in psychology to, to understand this, right? And, but that really is what it comes down to. And also be there when the person wants to complain, right? So there's going to be a lot of divorce complaining that happens. And it's hard. It's, it's hard 
you know, as a friend, if, if your friend's getting divorced, it's gonna be hard on you too, especially if you're in a marriage and your friend is getting divorced, because it's going to change the dynamics of your relationship with this friend, most likely, especially if you're friends with the ex-spouse. Like, this isn't necessarily always as easy as, you know, talking to a friend that was dating a person for a month and they're breaking up. Not that those aren't tragic and, and terrible events for some people, but usually their life is so wrapped up with each other that dealing with their, if you're a friend of theirs, chances are you're probably at least relatively close to the spouse. And so it does become a more difficult situation. And so the best advice really is to not to give too much advice is just to be there. So the person knows you have support so they can complain to you and so that you can just like help them if they need it. I mean, sometimes people need places to stay. So there's, you know, obviously quick things that can be done, right? So a lot of times when people get divorced, they're going to move out right away and they might need a place. So it might just be providing a bed for them to sleep on. But more than likely, as time goes on, it's going to be listening to them. And that's by far the most important thing. Don't tell them to get over it. Don't tell them how great it's going to be that they can date again and all that stuff. They'll get to that. Like they'll realize how great it's going to be that they're going to date again. That will happen. But when they first get divorced, that's not the time to start talking about, oh man, you're going to have so much fun out there dating nowadays. And they probably will be, but usually that's not what they want to hear about right when they get divorced. So there's a lot of wrong things you can say. And there's not that many right things you can say. The best thing you can do is just be there. Yeah, I think that's great advice and it's totally spot on. And another thing that you shouldn't do is to pry for details of, you know, why are they divorcing? You know, if that person wants to disclose and open up to you about that, that's fine. And that will come in its own time if they decide to do that. But it's not your job to drill down and figure out what happened. It's to be there and provide support. And I think to figure out what kind of support they need or want, right? So don't just assume that you know what they need, because what they need might be very different from the type of support that you have in mind that you want to give. You know, as a social psychologist, I've read a lot about social support and when it's most effective. And social support works best when you have this match, this mutual overlap between the type of support that's being provided and the needs of the other person. And, you know, sometimes this is where well-intentioned people go wrong is that they're providing support. They see themselves providing support, but it's not what the other person needs in that moment. And then that can actually make things worse. So it's all about this optimal matching of support and figuring out what the other person really needs. And I mean, and the other thing is from a divorcee standpoint that be ready for your friendship networks to actually change, that it's going to happen, that it happens to pretty much everybody who gets divorced, that there are dramatic changes in your friendship network, which is terrifying. I mean, you have, you're going to lose some support that you've had there before. Now, not everybody, but certainly it's going to shift and, and be ready for that. So the people you confide in are going to change as time goes on. One thing that we found when we talked to divorcees and even in our own personal lives, I don't, you know, we're data points of two, but when we talk to other people, we find that people often get divorced friends is what we ended up calling them, where they kind of sit around with each other. They didn't know each other before they got divorced usually. And they just complain about their exes. This happens usually at the earlier stages of divorce. And that's partially because if you're kind of the needs of the person listening to it, if you're not divorced, you'd, don't necessarily want to hear your friend talk about his or her divorce every single day. But you know what, we're going to want to talk about our divorce every single day at the start of it. And so very often these divorced friends get developed. Sometimes they become very close with each other that I mean, again, from my own personal standpoint, 
I had a whole network of divorced dads. I'm a dad, a whole network of divorced dads that we got together. And all we did was kind of complain, basically. I mean, it sounds terrible, but it was really nice to have this kind of, I mean, it's, it's cheap therapy. It's a nice way to kind of talk out your issues in this group of people who aren't being judgmental of what you're telling them and so forth. And so again, from the divorcee standpoint, you want to be aware of who you're also sharing your information with and, and be aware that that's probably going to change as time goes on. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the importance of recognizing that, you know, the people that you're friends with, if they don't have any experience with divorce, they might not be able to provide you with that kind of support that you need. So you might need to go out and cultivate new sources of support. And they're going to be terrified too. People do believe that divorce is contagious like the plague. Yeah. And so that's the other thing that ends up happening is you end up having some people withdraw from your friendship network because they don't want to be like you, essentially. And again, it does happen. And it happens to everyone. It's not personal against you. It's just what we do that these people are trying to protect their marriages. And they are worried, incorrectly, but they're worried that what happened to you is going to happen to them as well. Yeah. Now, after a divorce, a lot of people totally cut their ex out of their lives, but other people remain friends or at least try and stay amicable. And you have a whole chapter in your book on the importance of being nice or at least being nice-ish <laughs> to your ex. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that. And so when should you try to keep your ex in your life versus cut them out? And if you're going to stay on good terms, how do you do this with someone who may have hurt you in an extremely profound way, such as having cheated on you, right? So I think a lot of people, you know, when you say it's important to be nice to your ex, they're thinking, oh my God, this person hurt me in a way that I didn't know I could be hurt and I didn't know I could feel this pain. So, you know, <laughs> how do you manage or navigate that? Yeah, it, that, that to me, I think is for me personally, was the hardest part was kind of, having these different worlds interact with each other that you don't have much control over your ex anymore. Not that you had control over him or her beforehand, but it's less so even now. And so it becomes very difficult. And, you know, this is from work in the 70s and 80s by Constant Aarons that was done examining uh, people after they get divorced. There's not a lot of research actually on, on people right after divorce or step families or anything like that. So, you know, there's research, but not a whole lot. And what she found is she created these four basic types of, um, of uh, uh, categories of people who are divorced, couples who are divorced. And at one end, you have what she called the perfect pals, which I love that name. You know, cheesy, yeah, but it's, it's great because these are couples where they're basically best friends with each other. So they were married, they had all this life together, they got divorced, and they continue having that life together I mean, they're not having sex with each other, but they're doing things like celebrating holidays together, going on vacations together, talking to each other about problems, talking to each other about their current partners and stuff like that, just like you would with a friend. And we can talk about this as a good idea or not. It turns out it's not that great of an idea. <laughs> but about 15% of people right after they get divorced or a month or so after they get divorced, not the day after, but after they get divorced, kind of fall into this perfect pal kind of dynamic. Moving up from that kind of distance is what are called collaborative colleagues. And these are couples where they basically have a working relationship. So it's kind of like a person at work that you go to. Like you have some kind of shared thing that you're trying to, to achieve. Like you might have children together. Maybe you have a company you, you run together or whatever. And you deal with the person on that 
topic. So if it's children, you meet to talk about, are they going to get braces this month or next month? How are we going to budget for those braces and so forth? But it's very compartmentalized, just like a coworker, most coworkers at work, like you don't typically discuss big issues with coworkers, you focus on what the thing is at work, that's the issue. And so these people tend to, it's not they don't fight, they do fight, but they tend to fight about that issue. So no, I want to get braces this month. No, you want to get them next month. And they argue about that. They don't start talking about how their ex did these terrible things to them. And then kind of moving on from that, you get to a, a, a similar type category where they are working with each other, but they're fighting all the time. And those are called angry associates or fiery foes or the two categories. And that about 30% of people fall on them. Those are just couples that bicker with each other all the time. And then the final category is dissolved duos. And these are people that just, whoop, they just have left. And very often these people don't have children together. It's almost like when people date people earlier on and they break up very often, it's like, bye, like, you know, they just leave each other and they're done. And about 15% of couples do that after they get divorced. Again, it's what works for the person that's probably the best. So dissolved duos might be great for people who don't have kids or any interests. There's, there's nothing wrong at all with being a dissolved duo. Obviously, the angry associates and fiery foes, that's not ideal <laughs> because you're fighting. And so it really comes down to what's better if you have mutual interests, perfect pals or collaborative colleagues. And what it turns out is perfect pals, while it sounds like a great idea, in the end, it tends not to be as healthy for either person that what they tend to find is perfect pals tend not to be as good friends as the average person. That when we look at characteristics of friendships, like, you know, friends tend not to be critical of each other. They tend not to talk to, about each other around, behind their backs. They tend to share deep things and so forth. We find perfect pals tend not to do this as often as the collaborative colleagues. But probably the bigger issue is future relationships. That in the one study that was done, that where they examined these people across time, they found that those couples that remained perfect pals, none of them moved on and got married as the years passed on. Now, some of them fell out of perfect pals into, into another category, but if they remained that way, it was hard to start a new relationship, which probably seems obvious. If you, you know, it takes a very special person probably to accept that this person's best friends with their ex and that they do lots of things together and so forth. And again, it's not saying that that's a bad thing if it works out for a couple. It's just very difficult for most people to have that kind of overlap in their lives. Yeah. So it sounds like if you have some mutual shared goals, such as raising your kids the right way or running a business together, that it's really important to find a way to be amicable to yeah. some degree. Because you know, if you're fighting all the time, that's not going to be good for, for anyone. But if you have those broader goals, you need to find a way to work through some of those issues. And maybe that's where some counseling can come in and, and be helpful for figuring out how to do this effectively, especially if there is a history of betrayal in the relationship and one or both of you is feeling really hurt by the other person. And it's hard that you, we find that most people feel if they're, say they have a collaborative colleague relationship with their ex and they feel that their ex is being unfair, like they're being critical of something that's not related to if the kids should get bracelets or not. Like they bring up that, well, you shouldn't have cheated on me or something like that. Yeah. And it's hard then for that person often to report to not retaliate. Well, you know, I, I did that, but you did, you cheated on me first or whatever, you know, like, so they end up in this argument about this thing. And it's hard because you don't have, again, control over your partner on if they're going to try to like push that line a little bit. But what you do have control over is how you respond. And it's hard, but you have to remember is when you're divorced, that person you divorced really doesn't have that, that type of 
influence on you or they shouldn't have that influence as when you're married. You don't have to necessarily even like the collaborative colleague. You just have to get along with the collaborative colleague to make this work out. So if they say, you know, you smell like soup or something terrible, try to ignore it. Try to just stick to the topic. And it's hard. I get it. You know, I'm not saying me and my ex accuse each other of smelling like Campbell's. But again, we certainly get in these types of arguments and it's hard for, and I'm sure we both do it too. I don't want to say like, I'm the victim. Like we both do it from everyone's perspective. And it's really hard to stick on that path of just, no, let's just talk about these braces and not worry about, you know, if I smell like soup or not. But you just have to do your best to stick to it so it doesn't go off into a fiery foes kind of relationship. And it's trying. It really is. It it is probably... For me personally, getting divorced, and again, I have a great relationship with my ex. As, as I, we would, we're clearly collaborative colleagues. But you know, she lives you know two blocks from me. We have houses. She's remarried as well, and we both you know for birthdays we might meet up for the kids to have dinner and so forth. But you know, kids go back and forth between our houses and so forth. But even with our relationship, we still have these kind of like bickering type of moments. And again. I'm not saying it's her fault. I'm sure she wouldn't say it's my fault. It's it's both of our faults at different times that that we're not always great with each other. But the point is that that we try not to go off onto one of the the lesser categories. Yeah, and you don't want to be in that situation where you're constantly relitigating the same fights, bringing up the old trauma and wounds because that's just not going to be healthy for for anyone. And you know, something related to this since you talked about, you know, being collaborative colleagues, let's say you do have kids in the picture. How do you I, I know we could do like a whole podcast on this, but how do you not fuck up the kids when yeah. you're going through a divorce, you know? What what are some do's and don'ts of of that situation for, you know, making it so that it's not this really traumatic experience for the kids? Well, one of the the Good things or bad things, depending on how you want to think about it, is when you look at what variables kind of seem to have the biggest impact on, because certainly kids are impacted by divorce, right? I, again, you probably don't have to be a PhD to tell you that, but you do find, you know, slight increases in depression and decreases in academic performance and so forth. But one thing that might be explained a lot of this is simply change of economics, that SES is so highly related to all these different outcomes. And what happens when you get divorced is, essentially your income gets cut in half because suddenly you have two mortgages to pay for or two apartments to rent. You have twice as much food to get. You have all this stuff. And so your income goes down, which does impact the children. So again, you do have this, you might have to move out of a school district that you had moved into before because you can't afford it anymore and so forth. So you do have this change that happens because of economics. Beyond that though, the best thing you can do is, and again, this is something that everyone knows is you get along with your ex that at least in front of the children, that that is the key is that if you are going to have a fight with your ex, you don't fight in front of the children. And you don't talk about your ex to the children. Trust me, I get it. Like when you think you're right, you want to tell everyone in the world you're right, but your eight year old does not need to know that his mom or dad is wrong. And that I think becomes a really hard thing to do. Because as parents, when we go through divorce, I think we feel guilty about it. And I think we want to make make sure that the kid doesn't necessarily blame us for it. And at the end of the day, the kid's not going to blame most likely you as an individual. They will blame you and your partner as, as individuals. That they And they do blame themselves too, unfortunately. In fact, about 30% of kids do self-blame for their parents separating. 
And so what parents need to make sure they do is not fight in front of the kids and make kids very aware that they're not separated because of their kids. And that doesn't mean just saying we're not separated because of you. Because if you complain about your ex and like, well, you, you know, your dad or your mom always wanted to take you camping and I didn't want him to take you camping. And so that's why we're, we got in a fight. And that's what the kid's going to blame themselves for that because they're part of that discussion. And so it's just best to avoid any discussion with your kid about the reasons why you got divorced for in general. Again, I'm sure there are certain cases where it might make sense, but in general, you don't want to have those conversations in front of your children. Yeah, I think that's great advice and spot on. Now, we have much more to discuss, including tips on moving on from a divorce and getting back onto the dating market, and also how you can divorce-proof your relationship. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Promescent has everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray which has been clinically shown to help men increase their stamina in the bedroom. It has Target's own technology, which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews. It's also recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals. Promescent offers a number of other sexual wellness products, including their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants that come in water-based, silicon, and organic varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is Dr. Patrick Markey, author of the new book, Fuck Divorce. So let's talk about moving on from a divorce. Specifically, when is the right time to start a new sexual and or romantic relationship? And I know this is going to be different for different people based on their circumstances. And when we're talking about something like rebound sex or rebound relationships, we know that sometimes that's helpful. It helps people to move on faster because it restores their self-confidence. But other times it complicates things. You know, For example, if you jump into a new relationship, when you're not really ready for a new relationship, that can make things worse. So how do you know when it's time to get back out there? And do you have any tips on you know doing this in a healthy way, especially if you just ended a really long-term relationship and it's been a really long time since you've dated? Yeah, well, I mean, so I, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of parts. So one is how do you know, and you're absolutely right, there's no stopwatch here. There, you don't tell yourself, okay, two months, three months, four months, that it doesn't work that way. It's going to be different for every single person. Some people aren't ready to date after a couple of years. Some people actually are ready to date after a couple of months. I mean, it really depends on the individual. And, and you're right. It depends on what you're trying to get out of the date as well. But that, that's certainly something to consider. And, you know, we try to, you know, we make it simple as possible. We think of a red light, yellow light, green light on when a person's ready to date. And there's certainly these red light things. And most people at red lights know they're at a red light. We have, we have quizzes in the book, but you know, if you're not ready to date at the end of the day, like you might say, like, I want to go out there and just date, but chances are you probably aren't ready to date. And we find that, you know, people who, you know, obviously are depressed, who haven't really, who are still, it's not that you forget about your ex, you probably never forget about your ex if you've been together for a long time, but it's that you constantly ruminate about it. You start thinking about all those incidences that you may have had when you were married. Those, you're not quite ready. 
Then there's a yellow light, which like, all right, you're ready to start going out there. Like you're kind of got your feet under you. You're brushing your teeth in the morning. You're taking a shower. You know, you're getting your life kind of back together. This is probably when you're ready to start kind of practicing almost in a way to get out there and, you know, give it a try, kick the tires around a little bit, you know, and this is also a good thing to do because you want to kind of get that practice in as well, partially because of kind of what you said about having sex, but also dating, it'll give you a boost of self-esteem most likely that you'll feel potentially wanted more than you had before in your marriage. And not that you may not have been not wanted, but often you get that expressed a little bit more clearly at the early stages of a dating relationship. And then there's the green light. These are the people who are just ready to go. Like they are set. They're ready to go out. Maybe they're going to look for love. Maybe they're going to look for sex, whatever. But they're psychologically pretty healthy that, you know, again, it's not that they've forgotten about their divorce, but they have kind of moved on from it. And, you know, there's going to be time in this day. There's no rush necessarily. Like don't feel the need to get out there right away. I mean, what we find is about 50% of divorced people remarry after about five years, about 75% after 10 years. So chances are you're going to get remarried again, but it's not going to be on that date on Tuesday. It's going to be years of dating, probably multiple dates, which is fine. You want to kind of take your time on it. There's no reason to rush into it. And that kind of gets into dating itself, which is terrifying. So the average relationship ends after about eight years after getting divorced. And you probably, again, had dated that person for a couple of years. That means it's probably been about 10 years since you've been on a first date. And trust me, as a guy who, I mean, I've been divorced now for, oh my goodness, now almost a decade. So, but dating had changed a lot in that time that I was married. I mean, the biggest change was online dating, which blew my mind when I first got out there that (laughs) there was online dating. I'm kind of introverted. So I wasn't ready to start dating, like going to a bar, but online dating, wow, this is amazing. And so it does take time to kind of relearn it. Even if you came up with dating, because certainly online dating existed 10 years ago, but it's not at all like it is now. And so it has changed immensely. It's overwhelming uh, to most people. Most people will quickly find there's too many choices. And one thing we know in social psych is if you give somebody too many choices, that's not always a good thing that people get overwhelmed. They start to second guess their decisions and so forth. And online dating, it's the same thing. And so what becomes very important to people when they start doing uh, dating, and I'm focused on online dating because most people now are meeting people online rather than in bar. So if we're going to go with the average person, you're going to be online most likely is you need to come up with your own criteria of ways to limit down your potential mates right away. Otherwise, you're going to get overrun with them. And, you know, in the book, we focus on looks, personality and location are for us the big three. I mean, certainly, you know, if you're going to have children and stuff, you know, other things become more important. But these are quick things that you're usually looking for. And, you know, looks, yeah, you're going to be superficial. Everyone's superficial. So don't try to hide that looks aren't important. They're going to be important to everybody. And so get a sense of how important looks are to you. Like, are they more important than personality? Are they less important? Are you looking for a nine, an eight, a seven? You know, what's your kind of standard for looks? And then for personality, what kind of personality characteristics are you kind of looking for in the individual? And maybe even just characteristics in in general, their job and things of that sort. And then finally, location. And depending where you live, if you live near a big city, you can be picky on location. You could, you know, when I was dating, Tinder was around. And so I could do it in terms of the geography. I mean, I'm outside of Philadelphia. So I go, okay, within three miles of my house, and you get a whole bunch of choices. 
So you can be picky. And one thing we know is proximity tends to be really good for relationships. People that live closer to each other tend to like each other more and so forth. And, you know, I'm in Philadelphia. And so if I have to cross a bridge, that actually adds a whole nother dimension <laughs> to dating. So, you know, you want, you want to kind of think about these things. The other element that we focus on our book and, and might be relevant for more relevant for, for your podcast is the importance of sexual interests in people. And this kind of goes back to how we identified ourselves when we were with our mates. So again, we've probably been with this person about 10 years. You probably met him when you were like 20 or something like that, maybe 25. So let's be frank, you probably were pretty boring sexually. And you still <laughs> might be pretty boring sexually because you've been in this relationship. And usually people in relationships tend to kind of maintain the status quo, right? So it's position A, position B, sleep, position A, position B, sleep. But now you can redefine yourself and you can kind of figure out, are you happy with position A, position B? And that's fantastic. There's nothing wrong with position A, position B. Or do you want to try position D and Z and double A, you know, whatever. <laughs> like you can try all these different things. You can redefine yourself in terms of what you're sexually interested in. And then the nice thing about online dating is you can also try to find a person who has similar sexual interests as yourself. And this is different than in person meeting at a bar, right? So say you're into bondage. If you meet a person, there's no real clear indication if that person's into bondage typically or not. But if you meet them online and it indicates in their profile somewhere, which in most of these profiles, as you go down, you can find sexual interests and so forth. You could pick a person that has similar sexual interests as you. And we know from research, this is really important to have kind of persons with similar interests, whether it be sexual or football or baseball, whatever. It's a good thing because it gives you self-validation that if I say a person that sees themselves as fairly kinky is with another person that's fairly kinky, they can behave in that same manner, which kind of makes them feel good about themselves. Whereas if a person sees themselves as kinky, but they're with a person that's not as kinky, if they try to be kinky to that person, the person rejects them, they're going to feel kind of bad about themselves and vice versa too. a person who's not as kinky, who wants to not be as kinky, they might feel kind of like a prude around the other person. So it's something that we often overlook, especially after you've been married for so long, but kind of trying to find a mate who matches yourself in terms of your sexual interests, and your sexual behaviors becomes really important. And it's this is your one time you can really set that bar for where you want it to be. Yeah. And I think there's a lot that's important there. You know, a lot of people start out relationships, long-term relationships when they are young and they haven't really fully explored their sexuality. And we also know that people's sexual interests can change over time. You know, as somebody who has studied sexual fantasies, I actually see that people at different decades of life seem to be turned on by different things. And actually people seem to become a bit kinkier, especially in their 40s, right? They become a bit more sexually adventuresome. And so what you might want now might be very different from what you wanted in the past. And this is a chance to explore your sexual self, figure out what it is that you really want, recognize, you know, you don't need to brush. You can try a few different things if you want, date a few people, have a little bit of casual sex, you know, figure out what it is that you really want sexually, what it is that you really want in a relationship. And, you know, don't rush into it because you can use that information to really help you identify, you know, what it is that you really want going forward. Yeah. And so, you know, what happens then once you meet that person, you know, the next one, the person you want to be in a relationship with again. So how do you go about keeping that new relationship together? You know, we know that people who have divorced once sometimes get divorced again, and no one wants to go through this process multiple times. So how do you build that next relationship in a healthy way? And is there anything you can do to kind of divorce proof it? Yeah, well, I mean, you could try. I mean, and so I mean, you're right that 
the odds are against us. So the more divorces we get, the more likely we're to divorce in our next marriage. So, and again, I said, this is a divorcee. I'm not being critical of people divorce that I am more likely to give divorce now than in my first marriage. And then my next marriage, I'm more likely to divorce and so forth. Not that I'm getting divorced, but it would continue to go on. So it is something to be aware of. And it's something to hopefully, you know, it's going to be idiosyncratic on what you can learn from your previous marriage. And so if you can learn, you know, maybe don't think you're as patient enough or something like that, there is some self-reflection that should happen between your first marriage and your next serious relationship of, of what you can not fall into that same kind of hole again. And again, this is, it's hard because I think very often as divorcees, we want to blame our partner and, you know, sure it was their fault, right? As divorcees, we can all agree it was all of our partner's faults, but at the end of the day, something probably was on us that we could have done. And so it's important to go back and think about it. even something small, right? Maybe your partner did something big. You did some little bitty thing. That little bitty thing, you maybe you can improve on a little bit more for your next relationship. Again, I'm not saying that it has to, you have to think of it as it was your fault. The other thing that you can improve greatly is how you communicate with your partner. I mean, one thing when we talk to divorce, people get divorced. One of the main reasons why they get divorced is they fight all the time, that they get in arguments all the time. And so that ends up becoming a huge issue with people who are getting divorced. And one of the issues that we we see is, and hard to argue, I mean, it kind of goes back to, I mean, John Gottman's like the four horsemen of the apocalypse kind of thing is if you're really critical to your partner when you're having an argument, like overly critical, you have contempt, you stupid idiot kind of stuff. You're defensive about it. I'm not the stupid idiot. You're the stupid idiot. <laughs> or you escape, like you try to run away. You, you ignore the problem. You just kind of bury it under the rug and pretend it's not there. That if you argue that way, you're going to doom your relationship, essentially. That the best way to argue, obviously, is kind of how our collaborative colleagues would argue about a thing, is that you argue about the topic like it's a work topic. You focus on that topic, you try to come to a solution to that topic, and you don't move at The minute you feel yourself moving, and you do, right? I mean, me and Erica, you know, we're both psychologists, you know, we both know this, we both know what we're not supposed to do, but I'll tell you, when we get into arguments sometimes... It's hard to not, you know, uh, contempt, you know. And so it's important, though, to recognize that, too. When you see that happening, to be able to willing to leave the argument. This isn't escaping, though. You're just temporarily leaving. Everyone's taking a break. We're all going to cool down. And maybe this will be five minutes. Maybe tomorrow we're going to talk about this. But you set a deadline. And then you come back to address the topic like collaborative colleagues, if you will. And again, it's easy for me to say that's what you should do. And, and again, I know that's what I should do. And Erica knows that's what we should do. But it doesn't mean that's always what we should do. But that is the best thing you can do to try to divorce proof your marriage is something that you and your partner can do. I mean, obviously, there's all other issues that happen, right? Like don't cheat, don't do all this other stuff. But, you know, this is kind of the main thing that uh, gets discussed as, as a reason for divorce. Yeah. And I think related to that, when you enter a new relationship, it's partially about being really clear about what it is that you want now and what you've learned from your previous relationship, right? Because oftentimes people will start a relationship without discussing what the rules and boundaries of that relationship are, or even what cheating actually means in the context of that relationship. And so this is an opportunity to, to start over fresh and to really define your relationship on your terms and figure out, you know, what you think it is that's going to make it work for, for you and your partner. Yeah. And what you're saying is exactly right. And it's something I, I hope we try to get across in the book is on your next marriage, you kind of have a lot of that control that you might not have felt. Now, 
And it's at the start of it that you really want to kind of set that path that at some point you're going to get back into that routine with the person. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with having a routine, but you want to set the path on, on a routine that you enjoy. And it is at the beginning. That is the point to do it. It's hard to shift a routine after five years. It's not that it can't be done, but that's why there's therapy and, and so forth. Like it's, it's a big deal. But at the start, shifting that routine, that's the time to do it. Yeah. Now, we've talked a lot about divorce, and you've done work on a lot of fascinating subjects over the years. And we're running short on time, but one that I briefly wanted to get into is some of the research that you've done looking at seasonal variations in people's interest in sex. So you published a study a few years back looking at changes in Google search trends across the year, and you find that searches related to porn, prostitution, and mate-seeking behaviors change you know they show this seasonal fluctuation so what are the times of year when people are searching for these things the most and why is there that seasonal variability well this could lead nicely into dating because this is the time to go out and try to find the dates is when everybody's out there all all looking to have sex or to to meet a partner and so this research started based on previous research that was done examining seasonal trends and potential mating behaviors and so what they in the past what they did is they looked at like birth, what time of year are people born, and then count back to when they probably were conceived and make a good guess of when that happens. Turns out conception peaks a little bit in the winter time. You can look at condom sales and you tend to have this bimodal pattern of sales being higher in the winter and the summer. Doesn't mean that's when people are using their condoms, of course, but it means when people are buying them. You can also look at things like STI infections or it's redundant STIs. And when people get diagnosed, if you count backwards to when they most likely caught it, it turns out they probably, on average, are more likely to catch it in the summer and in the winter and so forth. And we found the same thing with the trends of when people are searching for porn on the internet, when people are searching for sex workers, or when people are searching for uh, basically online dating, what we call sex-seeking behaviors, but it's online dating. And they peak in the summer and in the wintertime. And the neat thing is this is data that goes pretty far back and a little over five years. And you see this consistent pattern that always peaks in these times. And it's not like it's this dramatic increase, right? It's not like summertime, boom, everybody's pants are off. <laughs> but there are definitely these consistent pattern that's happening in it. And the reason why, I mean, so that's kind of neat. And it kind of started off with us discussing is do humans have like a mating cycle? And I don't know if this shows that humans have a mating cycle by any means, but it definitely shows there's a pattern to how we mate on average. And the reason why that happens is we have no idea. Nobody really (laughs) knows. There's all these different theories. It could be two different things are driving it, which is probably the most simple explanation that, you know, summertime, we're all in our bathing suits all out there by the pool. Everyone's looking good. And wintertime, we're all closed quarters by each other. Whereas in fall and spring, we're just hanging out far with, with sweaters on. And so it might be those two different things are driving it. You know, people have suggested there might be fluctuations that happen in hormones and things of that sort. I haven't seen it. I mean, what the study's waiting to be done is simply in different geographic areas to see, do we see the patterns that happen as we get, say, as we get closer to the equator, does it go away? You know, we don't have seasons as pronounced mm-hmm. further. Nobody's ever done that. This study was done, you know, maybe 10 years ago or so. So I don't know if anyone's going to do it, but it was, it was, to me, it was a, a fun, interesting study. I don't know what the overall meaning of it is, other than if you're if you are looking for sex, you're most likely to find sex in the summertime and in the wintertime. That is fascinating. And I really hope somebody does that study where they look at, you know, 
how these seasonal trends vary and whether they do vary in different regions around the world, because that would be absolutely fascinating. You also did some research finding that people's porn searches change following elections, which I think is also super interesting. So just very briefly, are we more or less likely to search for porn after an election if our preferred candidate Uh, won? (laughs) So this is based on something called the challenge hypothesis. And the challenge hypothesis is the idea is that uh, it's it's from animals, basically, that when an animal is winning a competition, like it's fighting another animal, its testosterone tends to increase, particularly in males. And, and it makes evolutionary sense. If you're winning, you want to keep fighting harder and harder, whereas if you're losing, it's better if you kind of get out of there. And so testosterone increases when you're winning. And research have found before that, if you say your favorite soccer team wins a match, your testosterone tends to go up. So you don't have to be the one directly doing the competition to have this shift happen. That just if we identify with the victor, we're like, yeah. And political elections are kind of that way too, right? People put yard signs in front of their houses. People put bumper stickers on car. People wear wear hats. I mean, people identify this like, yes, this is my person. No, this is my person. And so we suspected that we weren't going to examine testosterone change, but we're going to examine loose proxy measurement of it, which would be change in porn searches. And what we found was People in states where the candidate, uh, or, or say in a Democratic states, if a Democrat won, there was a surge in porn searches right afterward relative to before. And it reverses when a Republican wins. There, in Republican states, there's a surge in porn searches. And so basically, <laughs> we've, re- we've replicated this four different election cycles. We've done it during uh, midterm cycles in the United States and presidential election cycles when Republicans win or Democrats win, and we always find the same thing. Whatever the winner is, porn searches increase in that the state that tended to vote for that winner. And so it's consistent with the challenge hypothesis. Now, we don't know if that's why, if it's a change in testosterone, or maybe it's just a change in happiness, or maybe it's a change in depression of the losers that they don't want to search for porn. Like, we don't know why again. Again, this is just one of the situations where the data are what the data are. But for some reason, there is this boost that happens in porn searches following political elections. We had joked at one point that, you know, we can replicate the study every two years and get a publications every two years. We can just <laughs> redo this study because it seemed to be very consistent. Now, we haven't done it lately and we haven't looked at what happened in the last election in the United States. I'm assuming it might not be there because of the kind of the chaotic nature of that last election. I don't mm-hmm. know if you would find it. And also, I don't know where you'd have the point at where you'd say, okay, this is where the surge would be not. But before that, like I said, we tended to find it pretty consistently. Yeah. So I guess winning an election can potentially make us horny. So thank you so much, Patrick, for this amazing conversation. It was really a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your new book? Sure. I mean, you can get the copy in most bookstores or on Amazon. And if you want, you can follow me on Twitter at Pat Markey. Uh, That's P-A-T-M-A-R-K-E-Y. Well, thank you so much for your time, Patrick. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>